Good morning. Welcome to Real Time with IPELRA, a podcast dedicated to HR topics in local government. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are reimagining policing. But before we get to our topic, we want to let you know about a webinar that's happening this Friday. We have Dr. Adrian Coleman addressing the IPELRA audiences uh, at 10 a.m. to discuss diversity in the workplace. If you haven't already signed up, this is a great opportunity to sign up uh, and attend this informational webinar. You and your senior staff, your managers, anyone who can benefit from learning about this important topic. With us today is Chief Menino, the police chief from Park Forest. And Christina, can you uh, give us a little introduction of our guest here before we say hello? Absolutely. Um, chief Menino has been serving the Park Forest community since 1997. Um, he's also an adjunct law enforcement instructor and recently has had occasion to speak publicly on a variety of policing topics, including uh, 20, in 2017, the Illinois Problem-Oriented Policing Conference, uh, the 2018 Women in Criminal Justice Conference, and most recently, the International Law Enforcement Training Summit. So welcome, Chief. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you. So most recently, you and I um, connected via LinkedIn um, after Park Forest PD was highlighted by Fox 32 Chicago um, in an article uh, for replacing a police officer position with a, an, a community engagement coordinator uh, position, which um, obviously is very timely in this uh, most recent discussion of what's going on across the country with requests to change how policing happens or defunding policing, which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, but most interesting about this is that you all changed um, actually about a year ago. Yeah, so I, I think it's, uh, it's really important is that this was not a, a reaction to um, what's currently going on in the news with the protests following um, the death of George Floyd. This was something that we implemented um, long, long before um, this was on the radar in this kind of a format. So really, it's, um, you know, it, it precedes uh, all the issues we're facing right now. It's, it's exactly on topic and extremely relevant to to what many people are asking for in policing. Absolutely. Um, so tell us a little bit about what led you to that decision. So it was a couple of different uh, philosophies coming together. First was, you know, being a, a small to mid-sized police department. And I guess I should just give some uh, basic info about my police department where we have 41 sworn officers in a total of about 55 employees. So, um, you know, mid-sized police department. And one of our perennial problems is uh, under understaffing. If, if we lose somebody to attrition or retirement or if someone goes to another agency, it's a very long process to bring in a new candidate who's a civilian, get them to the police academy and then through training. Um, and so we are often in a position of being short staffed. And so we looked at positions that we have that had a sworn officer in them, but did not require any sworn officer duties. And one of the things that we that we saw was our, our community policing uh, was run by a sergeant who, who really in that role wasn't doing any um, sworn officer required activities. At the same time, Park Forest has had a long history of really being progressive in how we uh, handle juvenile justice. Uh, we, we've always had a robust municipal court system to try and divert juveniles from the traditional criminal justice system. Um, and we had our own in-house restorative justice program where if a juvenile was found delinquent, 
um, they would be given a certain number of community service hours and, and we would we would manage that program. But in about 2016, we partnered with the Urban Youth Trauma Center at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and we created a 16 hour uh, youth violence prevention engagement, which is basically a, a program um, that gives these youth training and mentoring. Uh, all of it is trauma informed, basically, on how to understand their traumas and not repeat the behaviors that got them in that position to begin with. And really what happened was between needing additional officers on the street and realizing that we were seeing a lot of success with having this partnership with the Urban Youth Trauma Center, um, we essentially decided to move that policing sergeant back to the street where, where we could use the sworn officer capabilities answering calls for service um, and hire a civilian position to manage community policing and our, our youth violence engagement program and our other youth activities. Um, and essentially what we did, it was a little bit of larceny and we stole the, the, uh, person we had partnered with from UITC, uh, to come work for us. So now Rachel Wax has been with us for about a year as a, you know, full-time employee running what used to be the community policing division. Wow. Wow. So that's, yeah, that's really interesting. So tell us a little bit more about what's a day in the life like for Rachel. What is, what does her job look like every day? Wow, there's, you know, there's so many facets to what she does um, simply because we, one, we have a lot of interaction with youth and two, because we're um, trying to provide as many resources as we, as we can. So um, a lot of what her response is, uh, is basically involved with the juveniles that we take into custody. Um, her role is to supervise a, a screening process. So any juvenile that comes into the custody of the Park Force Police Department, whether it's uh, an arrest or protective custody, if a child walks through our doors, we screen them for adverse childhood experiences. And this, this screener was produced in partnership with, uh, it was led by Rachel's efforts and produced in partnership with uh, the Urban Youth Trauma Center and um, La Robita Children's Hospital. And so what we do is we try to determine if these youth in our, in our custody uh, are the, are the victims of adverse childhood experiences. And if there's a positive indicator, uh, we connect them with resources. So um, all of our officers are, are certified juvenile officers. All of our officers are trained in trauma-informed response. And any of them can provide a screener. But in, in her day, if a juvenile comes into custody, she'll handle that screening. And overall, she manages that, that screening program. And just as an example, in, in 2019, we had 142 different youth that we screened. 73 or just over half of them had a positive indicator for an adverse childhood experience. So we're wow. dealing with a lot of children who have a lot of, of issues, whether it's uh, things they've witnessed at home or in the community. There's a lot that need resources that, that if we were not doing this, we're not be getting those resources. So that's just one aspect of her job. She, um, she handles the traditional community policing functions. So if we have a a school fair that we're going to present at, or uh, if we're going to give a talk on internet safety, um, all those traditional activities that community policing does, she, she does, she uh, coordinates our national night out response and um, those types of events as well. We do weekly giveaways of, of electronic tablets in each of our schools and, and she handles that. Um, so in addition to that, she's the one who developed and provides our curriculum for the, for the 16 hour youth violence prevention engagement. So that basically occurs on Saturdays, four hours every Saturday morning. 
and her group is is any youth who were previously you know found um, liable for whatever offense they were charged with in our municipal system and she provides this this training uh, to a, a new group every four weeks okay so obviously having the position now in place for about a year um, have you already seen a return on investment and as sort of an attachment to that question what do you think in terms of long-term, how does this engagement with the youth in your community, um, how, does that, how does that change their future in terms of potential um, re-engagement in the criminal process? Or, or you know, are you thinking that having this relationship with this community service person in your, in your department um, will have a positive impact on, those, on, the, on the lives of those youth long-term? Sure, so let me start with the, the second question first. Um, I, I firmly believe that that in, in law enforcement, we have to look at juvenile justice differently. I don't think the traditional model of a kid commits an offense, we make the arrest, we send them on to uh, the juvenile justice system. While, while that may be appropriate in certain cases, I don't think that should be the default. And I think that um, we're missing an opportunity when we handle uh, juveniles in, in that way. Um, again, a, a incredible portion of the youth we come in contact with have experienced some seriously traumatic um, incidents throughout their lives from witnessing me victims of domestic violence to um, neglect and poverty to witnessing drug abuse. It's, it's really uh, palpable the need among youth in our community. So I think we have to have a better way of addressing that in, in law enforcement. And it doesn't matter where the policing is taking place. By its nature, law enforcement comes in contact with, especially where youth are involved, who are most in need. And so really what our philosophy is, is to try and, and act as a, you know, if I, if I had a metaphor, we're like a, a strainer. As the water pours through, we come in contact with everybody who's got issues. And so we want to make sure that we have something in place to identify those issues, which is why we screen them. And then in an address those issues, which is why we have things like the youth violence prevention engagement and why if a child maybe screens positive for, you know, witnessing violence in the past, we connect them with, uh, with one of our community outreach partners who can provide services to their family. So, so absolutely the goal is to um, essentially for every child we come in contact with, find out what is it that led them to create the behavior that they, they did to get them in that position and then what can we do to fix that? And I'm not suggesting that somehow we can, we can fix every child that we come in contact with. Um, but I think there's a portion that we can. And we miss that opportunity if, if we're not looking for it, if we're not looking for the underlying causes of their behavior, and then trying to address it. And I, I think, you know, you can make the argument, well, you know, it's not law enforcement's job to do. Um, but I, I come back to, if you, you know, if you look at the history of policing, um, basically created, modern policing was created by Sir Robert Peel in London in the early 1800s. His principles included that the role of police, the primary role should be the prevention of crime. And a lot of times we look at traditional crime prevention as just police presence and, and patrolling and things like that. And that's critical to policing, no doubt. But I think crime prevention is also determining what societal factors create crime and how can we address that. And while, while law enforcement may not be equipped to address every societal factor that's creating crime, I think that when we naturally come in contact with so many people in the position of 
having factors in life that 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 make it easier to commit crime that that's a natural choke point to to basically provide some services so that's what we try and do with with the community engagement coordinator position and and change uh outcomes for as many people as we can understanding we're not going to be able to change um or or help necessarily everybody and you asked about results so i'm i'm the first to uh, urge that correlation does not equal causation but when I look at our arrest stats, in 2015, we, we arrested 175 juveniles. 2016 is when we brought the person who's now in the community engagement coordinator position uh, in uh, through that partnership with the Urban Youth Trauma Center. And we dropped down to 150 arrests. In 2017, we had 117 arrests. In 2018, 92 arrests. And last year, in 2019, 73 arrests. So our arrests for juveniles were half of what it was in 2015. And again, I'm not suggesting that, that everything we're doing um, is the, is the only factor. I think that, you know, we have to acknowledge that societal problems are all often multifaceted. Um, but do I think it's having an impact? I absolutely think it's having an impact. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Um, as you said, I mean, it may not be the only factor, but it's hard to ignore that. Obviously there's some relationship between those two things. Chief, I have a question. It, it, it seems like this position is geared um, mostly toward youth and juvenile in the community. How is this different than a school resource officer? So a school resource officer is embedded in the school and their primary role is to you know, be the police li- liaison uh, in that facility. The, the community engagement coordinator position that we have is is we really want that position focused on people in, in need um, and really people in the most need. So, f- for example, sh- you know, she's dealing with generally youth who are either uh, have been arrested for something or who have been neglected and are in protective custody. Um, but her, her role is not only uh, juvenile related. She, um, for example, during this pandemic, she was uh, assisting um, providing services to some of our elderly residents. And um, she also is responsible for our broader community outreach, whether it's um, interacting with the schools or um, providing talks to maybe some of our assisted living facilities. Uh, so really, it, it's, it's an outreach role um, that touches all segments of the community. It's just that um, we see our greatest need being our youth. And we also think that our best chance at, at reducing future crime and improving the outcome in, in people's lives is by focusing on the youth. But, but to be clear, she, you know, she interacts with a lot of different groups and, and her role is really community outreach generally with a specific focus on um, juvenile offenders and then overall all victims. Okay. And how has this been received by the community? What are, what are the, uh, I mean, clearly it's been picked up by Fox News as, and then highlighted it as an example and what's going on. What are your direct experiences? Well, I mean, all of our uh, response has been uh, positive. It, it's, we, I guess what I would say is we're good at telling our story. Uh, we have a very um, prolific social media presence. And so we're not shy about, talking about the role that, that Rachel does as a community engagement coordinator and um, basically tooting our own horn when it comes to some of the good that we're doing through this role. So um, it's been a very positive response. I think that 
when you repeatedly tell the community that our goal is not to lock up kids, but to um, essentially uh, address juvenile crime through a variety of, of programs, processes, and resources, and it's done because we care about the kids, um, I think that definitely has a impact on the impression that, that the community has about the police department. And so, you know, we're able to essentially by telling our own story, um, reinforce to the community that we're, we're there to police with them. Uh, we're not there to police them. And that's kind of our, our underlying message over and over and over again. So um, we really have not seen a negative response to having this community engagement coordinator position. Do you think the community engagement coordinator provides a different opportunity to engage in the community than a traditional police officer? And I guess what I mean by that is you hear a lot about um, sort of sometimes the mistrust that exists between a police officer and, and people in the community in different portions of the community. Um, do you think this position kind of lends itself to just a different type of relationship that maybe opens the door to more trust with all of your, your entire police department within the community? Well, I, I think that I could see that um, being the case, possibly, um, depending on, on the nature of the community and the relationship they already have with their police department. In, in Park Forest, we're very fortunate in that we've, we've, over a long period of time, built up a lot of trust and goodwill with the community. Um, and while I'm not suggesting that, you know, everything's perfect and rosy, um, I don't see a huge difference in the relationship between a civilian and a sworn officer being in that position. The greatest benefit for us is that I don't have a sworn officer doing duties that don't require the, the sworn officer part um, of the position to, to do. I now have that officer actually out on the street enforcing crime, uh, supervising other officers. So the benefit comes more from, from efficiency uh, in, in our community. But I could definitely see that maybe in a community where they struggle with that, that yes, having somebody who's not um, you know, carrying a gun and a badge uh, but being kind of an intermediary may be, may be a benefit. It's just, just because of the nature of Park Forest, I think we're, we're beyond that need at this point in time. Right. So when you initially brought this up to the leadership, um, because I don't think this is super common in other communities, um, at least not any that I'm aware of, having this sort of non-sworn position that acts as that intermediary, um, was it, a, was it a tough sell to the, to the leadership or um, were they kind of seeing the same trends and wanting to look at more creative opportunities to address um, policing with the youth environment? Well, you know, I, I'm fortunate um, in that the village manager I work for um, has a lot of faith in, in who he has in leadership positions. Um, and without trying to sound like I'm trying to talk up my boss, um, huh. you know, r really he, he, like as he should, wanted a lot of information, wanted to fully understand it and take time to digest it. Um, and so it wasn't a, a quick, we just suggested it and, and a week later we were implementing it. Um, mm -hmm. but, but once the decision was made, um, th then yeah, then everything unfolded fairly quickly. But um, no, I don't think it was a tough sell in the sense of trying to be persuasive. It was just laying out what exactly would this look like? What are the benefits? How would it log logistically work? Um, and again, because this was this was pre, um, you know, pre George Floyd protest area or, or era, um, there wasn't the the focus on um, switching up resources and, and, and changing how we police. So it was a novel concept at the time. Where I think now, um, given all that the country's been through, 
I think that in a lot of ways, people would be more open to this kind of a concept. You know, one of the things that um, really was a driver for me reaching out to Chief when we when I connected with you on LinkedIn was in your sharing of the of the article you um, you posted about deploying resources creatively and efficiently to do the most good for our community. And with everything going on right now, I think, unfortunately, um, it's a lot of, there's a lot of high emotion around um, George Floyd and, and the aftermath um, where, where people feel like they need to take a stance of being either pro-police or against police. And there's not a whole lot of gray. Um, but what I really liked about your post was it was, it wasn't a, uh, a discussion of all or nothing. It's a, a discussion more about, how does this look in each community and how do we have those constructive dialogues um, around the relationship between police and the public and reimagining how we deploy our resources? Uh, that's not to say that we have to follow all the traditional models. It's not to say we should completely blow up the system altogether, but maybe we all need to look kind of at, at our communities individually and figure out what does that look like for us. And I think Park Forest has done some of that with this position. Do you foresee that dialogue sort of continuing in your community? I, I do. And I, I really think that that dialogue should be an ongoing dialogue. And it really, it's a shame that it takes a tragic event like the, the killing of George Floyd to create this conversation. And the other unfortunate byproduct is like you mentioned, it tends to put people in the two different camps feeling like they either have to be, as you said, pro-police or anti-police. And, and really, I don't think either of those positions is, is very helpful. Um, clearly police are needed in society, play an important role, um, a very, a very difficult role to fill something that one that's, you know, always changing. Um, and it's not always done perfectly and it, it varies from, from place to place. There are, there are locations with a great history of, of fair and impartial policing. And we all know that there are those areas and those police departments that have not been. Um, so it's a very, it's a very, in my mind, a very gray picture. Uh, and I think really we have to look at all aspects and we should be always be asking, how can we do things better, more efficiently? And, and for what goal, what's the end purpose? And, and I really think the end purpose should be to create as safe a community, at least from a policing perspective, as safe a community as possible. And how do we do that? Well, first, by eliminating the factors that, that cause crime to the extent that we can. And I recognize we're never going to eliminate crime completely, but I think that sometimes there are structures in place which uh, promote opportunities for crime. Uh, and if we address those and fix those, then, then we reduce some of what we're experiencing in society. So I, really, I would love to see that be an ongoing conversation. Really, I think that's what leadership's about, constantly evaluating and reevaluating the way we do things and determining, you know, based on, on knowledge and science, what could we be doing better? That's so interesting because we're, we're, we've been, I think, a little too focused maybe on the symptoms of, of what's going on and not trying to drill into the problems. And earlier on, you talked about sort of what leads to um, a situation where you have that, that young person in the police department because something happened. And instead of just looking at the piece of what did they do and what's the response to what they did it's it's really drilling into why what got them here what happened to them is there some sort of trauma that hasn't been dealt with that we can try to course correct um, and avoid this leading into future 
criminal activity um, or sort of descending further down, maybe the, not the best path for them in their lives. So most of our um, members in IPELRA and most of our listeners are HR management folks um, or assistant managers or things like that. How can we um, as HR and as city management, how can we support and assist in the, the dialogue with the police department and the police chiefs in our communities um, and, and have these conversations around creative strategies? And when it comes to leadership in, in um, essentially being aware of cognitive biases and how they impact our, our decision-making. Um, and one of the called the Semmelweis reflex. And the Semmelweis reflex is named after a Hungarian um, doctor who in the 1840s discovered that doctors would just wash their hands between patients. Mortality rate would drop uh, incredibly. And his fellow doctors rejected that information because it was nothing they had ever heard before. They couldn't see a reason for it. And so um, reflex is common among people when they hear new information that doesn't fit their current paradigm, they want to naturally reject it. Oh, no. Well, I think we might have just lost the chief there. Um, we'll try and get him back in a little bit. Christina, are you still with us? I am. Okay. Wow. That was certainly an interesting conversation. Uh, from an HR yes. perspective, I, I, I wonder if they are going to consider um, making this position full-time, you know, that Rachel is currently part-time, um, but with all the benefits, and I know city managers love the data, just to see the number of juvenile arrests go down the way it has, it makes you wonder what would happen if this position was full-time or if there was more than one in this position. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's it's fascinating to hear um, just the discussion about what leads on this road um, and how they got to filling this position. It is it was a very proactive approach when they did it, um, and hearing that they kind of started that ball rolling back in um, you know 2015 2016 with the relationship. Um, it was just really interesting. All right, let's go back. Excellent, thank you. Welcome Technology. back, Chief. Good when it works. Um, so you were just you were just leaving off on this really um, fascinating analogy uh, that you mentioned about changing the paradigm and, and things that haven't worked in the past were reluctance to to try them. Yeah. So I'm um, I'm a big believer in in leadership being aware of cognitive biases and how our own biases uh, affect our perception of things and decision-making. And one of those is something called the Semmelweis reflex. And it's named after a Hungarian doctor in the 1840s who discovered that if doctors would just disinfect their hands between treating patients, mortality rate would drop astronomically. And even though he was able to demonstrate this, his fellow doctors rejected it. It was something they'd never heard of before. They couldn't understand why that would, that would, uh, possibly work. There were some who even believed that a, a gentleman, I use that word in quotes, huh. couldn't possibly um, transmit diseases from his hands. And, and so this, this effect of naturally wanting to reject things that don't fit our, our current paradigm, I think, has a, has a huge impact um, on, on leadership. And so, you know, I'm, I'm guilty of this myself. And so what I try and, and do and what I try and stress when I talk on leadership is that um, 
to be aware that that while our first reaction to something doesn't fit our our already conceived of notions um, is to reject it, that we should probably reevaluate. And just as an example, when when the whole defund the police thing came out, um, my first reaction, I think, like like most in law enforcement, was to reject the concept um, as just being you know ridiculous. But when I started listening more, and I realized that the majority of people using that phrase did not mean uh, abolish the police, um, but what they meant was redeploy resources um, to better serve the community, I realized that essentially that's that's what we we've been doing. And example was the community engagement coordinator position. Um, but another example I give is community service officers. Many police departments across the state have a civilian position that responds to non-criminal complaints like parking or traffic, um, uh, directing traffic or, or things of that nature. And so r- really we've always believed in that, that the only difference here is that it came up through a highly emotional uh, incident. And, and because a lot of people are angry, we are responding defensively. So I guess when, when your question is, you know, my advice for, you know, village managers and HR directors is to, realize that there isn't one side of this, that, that really our position in leadership should be where's our common ground and where can we build on that common ground? And, you know, again, I think that if we look at it um, outside of a highly charged emotional environment, we'll see, we already agree with the concept of redeploying resources to better serve the community. Now we may not always agree um, on how that should be done or what that should look like, but let's start with that common ground and let's see where are we already doing it? Where do we just, just need to maybe communicate better? Yes, we, we agree. And here's how we've already done that. And, and how can we maybe change it going forward to better serve the community? And I think that if the goal is to rather than defend a position, but to actually try and serve the community in the best way that we can, we'll find a lot of common ground and be able to make some changes that, that has that effect of doing more good in the community for however you know, long we're, we're in place to employ it. Excellent. Um, Chief, uh, a minute ago, Christina and I were kind of postulating, is there any talk that Rachel might be made full-time? Oh, she is. It's a full-time position. Oh, it is. Okay. I guess I misunderstood. I thought it was brought in as a part-time, but now it is a full-time. Um, well, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I certainly learned a lot, and I'm sure that our, our listeners have learned a lot as well. They may even wish to get in touch with us. If they'd like more information on this topic or, or maybe there's other chiefs out there who are considering bringing this type of position to their department, how can our listeners get in touch with you? So the best way to reach me is via email, which is C-M-A-N-N-I-N-O at parkforest-il.gov. Great. And I will put a link to that in the body of um, the podcast, which is available on all your major platforms. And if our listeners have anything they want to say, we're listening. Send us a recorded voice message. We can play or join us on a future podcast. Connect with us through the website at www.ipelra.org. And of course, on Twitter at I-P-E-L-R-A. Support IPELRA by becoming a member. We are dedicated to providing training and resources to HR and labor professionals and local government. Next time, as promised, we have IPELRA's own Al Stanish on to talk about early retirement versus employee layoffs. Uh, after that, we have Margaret Ely, the executive director of IRMA, who's going to discuss 
uh, some issues with COVID claims and workman's comp claims. But Chief, uh, um, it's been a wonderful, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Um, so thank you very much. We appreciate it. It's been great to be here. Thank you. I'm Megan Falera. And I'm Christina White. And this has been Real Time with iPowera. Thanks so much for joining us.